content warning, discussions of death that some listeners might find upsetting. Welcome to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for listening. This is episode 11, The Curious Case of Mary Moore. This episode is dedicated to Jane Martin. In this episode, we're joined once again by Katie Ledane. Um, But before we get started and we talk about the curious case of Mary Moore, I just wanted to help people understand, if they're not familiar with the North East and Newcastle, um, who exactly is Mary Moore, where did she come from, and why are we talking about her in relation to the Newcastle witches? So one of the witches who was killed in Newcastle in 1650 was actually from Northumberland and Northumberland is a county north of Newcastle and it stretches all the way up to the Scottish border. Mm -hmm. In this episode you're going to hear about a place called Berwick and Berwick I think it is still the most northern town in England. Yeah yeah, very very close to the Mm -hmm. Scottish border, Um, a very important border town. You're also going to hear about Annick, which is another town quite close to the, the coast in Northumberland, and Holy Island, which is a tidal island just off the coast of the northeast of England. And it also goes by the name of Lindisfarne. So that's just to set the scene for people that were not necessarily in Newcastle, but this story is still relevant to the Newcastle witches, and we're going to find out why exactly. And this is what we're here to do today. At the the centre of our episode is a pamphlet called Wonderful News from the North. And its author is a woman called Mary Moore. She is a a well-off, well-connected woman living in Northumberland. And she is able to write and publish a pamphlet um, detailing a story where her children are affected by witchcraft conducted by other women from Northumberland, one of them being Jane Martin. So as well as geography to keep track of, um, there are lots of people mentioned in the in the pamphlet, and we'll try and keep it as succinct as possible in our retelling, um, but just to give people an idea of who the main characters are in this story, there's Mary Moore, and she has uh, three children, um, a daughter called Margaret, uh, George, who we think is is older than Margaret, and Betty, who is the younger sibling. Um, She marries a man called Edward Moore, um, who already has seven children, six sons and a daughter. And so it's a very big, very um, a a blended family, as it were. And after getting married, Mary and Edward Moore have another child called Sibylla. Um... In her pamphlet, Mary Moore is going to accuse primarily first a woman called Dorothy Swinnow, who is is very wealthy, um, well married. Mary Moore and Dorothy Swinnow are already in some kind of disagreement around an inheritance, um, which we can talk about as well. Um, But she'll also come to accuse Dorothy Swinnow and Jane Martin and Jane's sister, Margaret White, of witchcraft and making her children 
sick. So this is um, in no means an easy um, story to describe within the limits of our podcast episode. Um, but hopefully we can unpick a few really crucial details because at the end of this story, Jaymon will be found guilty and will be hung um, alongside the Newcastle witches uh, for witchcraft. And this testimony goes into a real lot of detail into what kind of witchcraft um, she was believed to be guilty of. Thank you for coming back to the Candle and Bell studio, Katie, um, and helping us understand this very special pamphlet. Yeah, so the pamphlet in itself is really interesting um, in the history of English witchcraft as a whole. Um, Again, it has a very long title as a 17th century text, um, around a paragraph's worth. And it begins, um, wonderful news from the north, or a true relation of the sad and grievous torments inflicted upon the bodies of three children of Mr George Mewshamp, late of the county of Northumberland, by witchcraft. Why the pamphlet is so rare and so interesting is because it has a female author. And this is a rare phenomenon in the world of English witchcraft pamphlets. It was written by Mary Moore, who is the mother of the um, three children mentioned in the title. And um, looking at how we connect the Newcastle witch trials to English witchcraft as a whole and kind of how, as a country, people communicated their stories and their fears about witchcraft is really important here because um, although we know that there was a publisher in Newcastle at the time that the pamphlet was released in 1650, it seems that Mary Moore chose to have her story published in London. So she, she made the decision to bypass the kind of more provincial Newcastle publisher to have her story published in the capital. There's the kind of indication that she was already dissatisfied with uh, local authorities. She felt that they weren't um, helping in the way that they should, which is partly why she published had the um, pamphlet published in the first place. Uh, but there is the sense of kind of calling for the attention of higher authorities um, to be listened to. And as a wealthy woman, she could kind of use her privilege to spread the news further than some of the other cases in the area. She's quite the socialite. She travels around. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things also, and apart from the fact that she was able to publish this, we could probably ascertain that or assume that she was a well-connected person because she mentions a lot of people in, like, Colonel this and that and yeah, so-and-so definitely... from Holy Island and mm-hmm. this person and that person. So she seems to be using a lot of influence in, in society in the Northeast to kind of make her case mm-hmm. um, against the person that she accuses of witchcraft. Yeah, so you can kind of see that she's very self-aware in the importance of um, bringing all of the evidence that she can, and that means from very influential figures. So she talks about consulting doctors from Newcastle, Durham and Edinburgh, which gives us the Scottish connection again. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you say, a lot of the witnesses that she mentions are captains and colonels, or they're from very uh, wealthy, established families in the region, like the Selbys and the Fenix and things like that. So yeah, she definitely knew what she was doing and had the power 
to do it. So uh, where does this, this story begin? So the events of the pamphlet actually um, begin in 1645, so five years before the um, pamphlet sees the light of day and five years before um, Jane Martin was executed for the crimes that she's accused for within the pamphlet. And um, Margaret Mushamp, who was um, Mary Moore's child from a previous marriage to George, um, began experiencing what she'd later call symptoms of uh, possession. But it started out as a heavenly or angelic experience, um, according to her and her mother's understanding. And this links, again, to the spiritual vulnerability of children. So children at the time were regarded as kind of more easily influenced by both good and evil. When at first she was kind of being visited by angels and having visions of angels, it later became um, more demonic in nature in that she became unable to speak, eat, walk and was retching to vomit. Part of her symptoms were also that she'd fasted for 16 weeks but looked completely fine and hadn't lost any kind of shape or colour to her cheeks at all. And then um, while her mother was absent in Newcastle at the time, Margaret um, motioned to be carried outside by her cousin and then ran out into the woods screaming. And at this point, George, her brother, also became sick. So I guess like the spell or this sickness that Margaret had was now spreading to the other children. Yeah, this is where we see it kind of spread beyond Margaret into the wider family. Later, um, her sister Betty also becomes ill, but um, when we start to look at the family dynamics happening here with um, a blended family, um, Mary and her children were taken in by Edward Moore, who had seven children of his own. Yeah, it becomes very interesting when you realise that it's only Mary's children from the previous marriage plus her new child with Edward Moore that becomes sick. So we can start to look at this as kind of maybe um, an expression of Mary's anxiety about her children within this new marriage. At the at the beginning of the pamphlet, though, these visions, this sickness, whatever, um, it's almost seen as like a, a, a blessing, I think, or a good thing. Yeah, yeah, so almost a, a privilege yeah. for Margaret to experience. She says, like, do not weep for me, for I have seen a happy sight and heard a blessed sound. Yeah, so it was almost a kind of display of um, Margaret's virtue and purity. Um, be before things even become demonic, um, Mary Moore mentions the people that she's inviting in to witness what is happening and the doctors that um, are keen to observe Margaret's condition. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't, it's still like a, a spectacular occurrence um, as other witchcraft cases are recorded as, but not necessarily a criminal matter to begin with. I mean, that's another really fascinating thing that she did get from her account, so many people to come and look at her daughter just to witness it. And she says like, Sir William Selby, his lady, the Countess Lendrick, the Lady Haggerston, and many others. And just like it, the pamphlet is full of these names mm -hmm. of people, I don't know, but maybe, you know, people of some kind of influence or standing, otherwise she wouldn't have mentioned them. She was really eager for people to witness what was going to on with her daughter. 
Yeah, definitely. And if we um, if we believe her narrative of events beginning as far back as 1645, she's had five years to put this together. Mm-hmm. And as thing like it wasn't necessarily a diary, so she wasn't kind of just recording things as they were happening. She's gone back after it does become demonic in nature and um, you get shipwrecks and uh, one of the witches appearing in the form of a dragon, a bear, a horse and a cow. And that's definitely going to affect how she then goes back and writes the beginning of the narrative and the witnesses that she wants to add Mm -hmm. into this. So when do things start to turn demonic? Yeah, so she asks for some fresh air and when she's kind of set down in um, the back garden, I suppose, she just runs out into the woods screaming and um, that's when George, her brother, gets sick and she's kind of returned to bed and things go quite far downhill from there, I suppose. Yeah, it's about to get very interesting Um, and... Also quite weird and spooky. I feel like you should have the honour of, of walking us through the, the testimony and what, what Margaret is about to describe to her mother. Um, Margaret starts to describe what I mentioned just there, essentially, how a man that she refers to as the rogue um, starts to visit her. And it's not quite clear if it's kind of physically or um, in her dreams, in this trance state that she's experiencing and fights with her, as I said, in um, the form of a dragon, a bear, a horse, and a cow. So we've got shape-shifting starting to enter um, the the content of the pamphlet. And um, shape-shifting into a dragon especially is quite rare. I find it just fascinating testimony and really unusual to hear this coming from such a young person, an 11-year-old girl living in Northumberland. It is definitely unusual in accounts that we see, especially with in other um, children's accounts of witchcraft too. Could you tell us about the codes Margaret used? It is by this point that um, Margaret could not speak, so she couldn't name this man that um, she'd previously referred to as the rogue. Um, But she did write down the names of people that she was starting to suspect of causing this possession. And she wrote um, the letters, anyway, uh, J-O-H-U, and then separately D-O-S-W-O. And the pamphlet kind of moves on from this to refer to a John Hutton. So that's our first candidate that lines up with these names. And he was actually a local cunning man. And um, just to explain cunning men a little bit more and how they differ from witches, they were kind of recognised as having uh, uncommon gifts, I suppose. But it was more about um, skill rather than supernatural power. So knowledge of herbal remedies and things like that and skill in divination um certain ways to tell the future that before the witchcraft act of 1604 kind of towed the line of witchcraft or were considered a lesser crime within the hierarchy of witchcraft and originally 
Mary Moore sought his help to kind of end what was going on with Margaret. And coincidentally, with the names again, he says that he knows for a fact that it was Dorothy Swinnow that was causing the sickness. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, messages from Margaret, a cunning man, already this history with Dorothy Swinnow. Um, Is it ever explicitly said Dorothy Swinnow, or is it all coded and assumptions? Kind of close enough, we get um, SWO, whereas her name is Swinnow, so it might have been like SWI instead, but that's enough for um, Mary Moore to kind of set her targets to Dorothy. So in in their first meeting, that's when he implicates Dorothy, um, but then she begins to suspect probably through uh, Margaret's coded messages that John Hutton is involved in the cause of her uh, possession symptoms, I suppose. And she asks to take some of his blood. And um, this ties into what's quite a, a common practice in Northeastern witchcraft, the act of scratching. The act of what? <laughs> um, so, what is the act of scratching? So it's kind of... Either when people were not willing to wait to take cases to court or things were um, more urgent, it was the logic that if um, you could get the blood from a witch by scratching her or him, usually in, um, in an area described as above the breath in local cases, so depending how literally you take that, we're looking kind of like from the nose up to the forehead. And the logic was if you scratched the witch there and got her blood, it would break the spell. Okay. So it's kind of an out-of-court settlement for <laughs> witchcraft, I suppose. That's, that's a really polite way of putting it, though, because, yeah. you know, scratching, like you're physically hurting somebody. Yeah, um, and I think... The placement is quite interesting too. So rather than um, the the secret places of in a lot of pricking cases, this is a very like visible yeah. um, area to kind of go out in public and have on display that you have at least been accused of witchcraft to the point that um, people are willing to scratch and perhaps like scar your face because of it. And I suppose, unfortunately for John, Mary believes that this technique works. Briefly after um, John had had his blood taken, um, Margaret was okay for a while. Was he was he willing? Was he? Did he agree to to get scratched? Was it? Was there a bit of debate about it? Or yeah. he actually in the pamphlet he's definitely under duress, but um, he he I think he says that he recognizes that his life is in. Mary's hands so he knows that he's kind of making this bargain almost and kind of being willingly scratched in order to hopefully stave off any further um, progress with prosecuting him for witchcraft because he knows that that could end up in a much worse result. And of course Margaret gets better. Yeah so Margaret gets better and on um and on Mary's journey back from taking the blood, there's a huge storm as well. And that actually causes um, one of the ships to 
um, crash into Berwick Harbour. And that's where one of the witnesses um, is on one of the ships and um, it kind of brings in more influential names. And Okay, so now we're talking beyond visions and inability to speak. There's some sort of conspiracy of witches. Um, I mean, if I was if I was John Hutton, I'd be a little frightened. As Margaret's illness does progress, John Hutton trying to um, literally save his own neck implicates the Miller and Webster's wives. That's how he refers to them at first. But we know that this was Jane Martin and Margaret White. A Webster being um, a term, another term for a weaver. So these these women were not affluent and well-connected um, people. They were a different social class to Mary Moore. So yeah, at this point when Margaret um, Margaret's illness continues and John Hutton implicates uh, Jane Martin and Margaret White, um, John is then jailed, but uh, in Newcastle, actually. He's taken to, in the pamphlet, pamphlet it says Newcastle Jail, and this was likely in Newcastle Castle. So in the... Um, the cellar area of the keep. Yeah. And that was currently being used as a jail by the mid-17th century. Um, he's later mentioned as dying in jail and um, for Mary Moore to kind of add extra evidence of this supernatural connection between John and Margaret, um, Margaret is aware of this news before anyone else. Um, but yeah, when John was jailed, a warrant was not granted for Dorothy Swinnow, who is the main target of. Um, and he's already accusing Dorothy and Jane Martin and Margaret White, mm-hmm. but they aren't arrested at this point. Not at this point, no. Um, when the warrant is not granted for Dorothy Swinnow, that's when Mary Moore turns her attention to... Jane Martin and Margaret White. Interesting, okay. And we think why the warrant wasn't granted for Dorothy is because she was wealthy and at the time the wife of Colonel Swinnow and she was able to flee to Berwick where the local justice um, kind of essentially harboured her there and refused to uh, release her back to um, Mary Moore's custody. Oh. But the Millers and the Webster's wives were <clears throat> obviously not that well connected or mm-hmm. affluent, and they were sort of right in the firing line then. Essentially, yeah. Um, and but it's actually Margaret White that makes a confession. That that's something that we don't really see of anyone else involved in this case. So the confession is um, taken down by Master Edward Ord. Um, and it's Margaret White of Chatton on her own confession of herself. And this, I think, is taken in in Berwick, this testimony. Um, So just to give our listeners an idea of what is in this confession, because it's fascinating and it's one of the the only confessions we have. It says that the devil came, came to her in the likeness of a man in blue clothes in her own house. He gave her a nip on the shoulder and another on her neck. And she confesses that her familiar came to her in the likeness of a black greyhound and that the devil had carnal knowledge of her in her own house two several times. And Mistress Swinnow 
and the said Margaret, her sister, came purposely to the house of Master Edward Moore of Spittal to take away the life of Margaret Mushamp and Mary, and they were the cause of the children's tormenting. tormenting. And she confesses that they tried three several times to have taken away their lives, and especially on St. John's Day at night, gone 12 months. And she says that God was above the devil. It goes on into more detail, and it's really... It is. It does sound demonic, and mm-hmm. you wonder, like, why she has said these things, and if she was coerced into saying them, or I guess you can you can only think wonder, I suppose. I mean, and I really like this. This is like a weird, really weird sentence. Um, Mr. Swinnow came riding in a riding coat on a little black nag to the spittal, and she and her sister were also the occasion and had a hand in the death of the said child. I guess they're talking about the child that Mary Moore gave birth to? Yeah, yeah. I think they're, they're talking about Sibylla Moore, mm-hmm. and um, I think it says earlier in the pamphlet that um, she believed that the witches had tried to cause a miscarriage but it hadn't worked and God had protected um, Sibylla from that, but then she um, later died not long after birth. So you see these quite like horrific experiences that um, the family are going through with child mortality being like quite high at the time and um, the sickness of several of the children. But you see this alongside um, some quite strange and inane in a way details like the the devil appearing in blue clothing Mm -hmm. and um margaret white also says that um the devil had a special nickname for jane martin he called her bess yeah Yeah. or or bessie so you're quite surprised at those details being included and the fact that um jane was also reportedly responsible of causing richard stanley to have a sore leg it is really fast when you take out the witch element, like you said, like looking at this family, they must have been going through some horrendous stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, then you put in like the testimony and you have all this added drama, I guess, to almost make it more believable, maybe. Just like to kind of prove like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm friends with the devil. He has a nickname mm. for me. And to further implicate her sister. Definitely, yeah. And um, again, it kind of shows... Uh, Mary's construction of the pamphlet in a way she's kind of determined to include all of the evidence and detail that she can in order to kind of present this as something that she'd really um, gone through Mm -hmm. and with these kind of smaller details coming from Margaret um, and and from Margaret implicating her sister Jane in this you get a, a different sense of she's willing to tell her investigators everything that they want to hear and in in a way that she's almost like grasping at straws and just telling them Mm -hmm. things and telling them things in a way to like hopefully satisfy them so the questioning will end dorothy has gotten away is it but still mary moore makes the point of in in this confession by margaret white of, of mentioning dorothy do you think like She's she's pissed off basically that one of the one of the guilty parties has gotten away, mm-hmm. and is that maybe like at the beginning you said like she was probably frustrated with the authorities, you know, in the northeast. That's why she went to London because mm-hmm. you maybe like have a real bee in her bonnet, bonnet about Dorothy 
and that that witch got away. Yeah, definitely. You can see that uh, the pamphlet actually concludes with a plea to invo- um, to indict Dorothy in the same way that has been done with um, Margaret and Jane. So that's a kind of another way, um, another function of the pamphlet, as well as to like publicise this story and this, what she sees as like an ongoing case of witchcraft to warn others. Mm-hmm. She's, it's actually a call to arms to continue to pursue Dorothy. So she finally has this confession. Um, in the meantime, what's, what's happening with the children? So there's been the death of Sibylla, but um, Margaret, George and Betty are still influencing, um, experiencing sickness, as the pamphlet concludes. So they never get better? Um, not within the narrative of the pamphlet permanently, okay. I wouldn't say. Okay, so she's, we're starting to see like a bit more about Mary Moore and understanding like what she might have been going through. She's obviously hell-bent on the witch's angle at this time. Is there any reason, like at this time, are there any other witch trials happening or is she influenced from sort of witch trials in the wider country or in Scotland? So I'd say there's definitely um, potential that she had heard the news of the witch finder arriving into Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Because this kind of occurs alongside his invitation, like the petition to invite him right through to the execution of the Newcastle witches. But as we mentioned earlier, she's also quite well connected into Scotland herself as well. So there's the great Scottish witch hunt of 1649 to 50 happening like in tandem with this. So she has witches sort of on the brain, isn't it? It's, it's a bit of like almost self-fulfilling prophet like I don't know what was what's the term or confirmation bias I don't know cut this out but (laughs) what is it you know like when you 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 know you start thinking like it must be the cause you get sort of quite a narrow focus when everybody around you is talking about witches and supernatural intervention Mm -hmm. you're looking at your children who are very sick you almost had a miscarriage you know your infant dies you start think you start to become convinced yeah definitely especially because the pamphlet does um kind of pick up in the middle of um, um, of Mary's kind of vendetta against Dorothy. Yeah. So um, Margaret's sickness isn't, isn't even where this feud, to a certain extent, begins. So you can almost see Margaret's sickness as the her tipping point, in a way. Yeah. yeah. So... Okay, so what was the the feud, what were the, the accusations against Dorothy apart from being a witch? So um, Dorothy had also been accused of killing Mary's sister, Lady Hambleton, um, with the awareness that Lady Hambleton was only able to keep her family estate for a lifetime and when she died it would go to another branch of the family through marriage instead. Okay. So as well as this sickness and um, tensions in the blended family. You've also got an inheritance scandal, I suppose, going on. Oh, so the plot thickens. But we know, we've heard this before, that inheritance could be a driving factor in accusing somebody of witchcraft. Yeah, the section mentions that um, Dorothy had apparently killed Lady Hamilton through witchcraft knowing that the family would then not inherit the estate. And who would get the, in- the estate? 
um, it would go to um, the husband of Lady Hamilton's daughter instead. So it, it essentially crosses over to another um, okay. local wealthy but family. But what would Dorothy stand to gain from that? Um, she doesn't quite get into the detail of it because the um, it's kind of used in the pamphlet to furnish the story of demonic possession and kind of to give Dorothy this background reputation to, as... To make her look suspect, I suppose, to make her look like an untrustworthy person. We don't really know. We, we're not given a copy of Lady Hamilton's will, unfortunately. That would have been great for this. But um, we don't know if Dorothy would have directly inherited or she's concerned that members of her family won't. Okay. So you do see this kind of, again, perhaps like an anxiety about family connections and the inheritance of wealth mm-hmm. and this kind of manifesting itself in the form of witchcraft she's kind of using the language that's so common um both sides of the border at this time to articulate her own personal fears I suppose. yeah okay god it's a complicated story to unpick and unfortunately it results in margaret and jane being convicted of witchcraft and locked away in jail is this mm. correct yes yeah, so um Unfortunately for us, um, Jane Martin is the only one recorded as um, having been executed. We don't really get to find out what happened to Margaret. Um, and we know that John died in jail. But um, Jane Martin was hanged alongside the Newcastle witches and the um, nine moss troopers, also from the border regions. And Jane Martin would have been taken down from a jail, likely in, in Morpeth or Berwick, and then kept overnight in the Newcastle castle before being executed. And if if Margaret wasn't executed, we can, I think, assume that she probably died in, in jail. Mm-hmm. And um, there's another quite interesting link between this case and the um, Newcastle witches. In this case is the Henry Ogle, who um, famously pursued the fraudulent witch finder into Scotland. He was the High Sheriff of Northumberland according to this pamphlet. Yes, and he actually heard Margaret's confession and um, was involved in the prosecution of the, this case. He chased, he chased uh, or pursued the, the witch finder um, from the Newcastle witch trials, didn't he? He went in pursuit of him to show him up as a fraud. It, it reminds me of what um, David Silk was talking about in terms of how there was an actual trial um, and people had more faith in, in that legal system than maybe witch-pricking um, and things like that. Um, but this was a very rational argument, and when you have somebody produce a confession, then um, that maybe felt more justified that, yes, this person is a witch, her sister is a witch, John Hutton was involved in, in this circle of witches, um, this is all perfectly normal and we can prove it in a court of law. Um, this pamphlet, which is sort of the testimony of Mary Moore, ends essentially, I guess, with a, almost like a, a, a warrant or a call to arrest Dorothy Swinnow on charges of witchcraft and infanticide for killing mm. 
uh, Sibylla. Um, we don't really know what happens, but I get the feeling that it isn't just, even though we might not have any evidence of what happens later, Mary Moore does not give up on this. Does this she? is the point where she um, disappears from um, records, okay. in a sense. Um, I definitely think that this would have followed both her and Dorothy for years to come. But we don't have any any record of what might have... Because you can't imagine it's like if you're charging somebody with witchcraft and infanticide, then... Yeah, you don't really publish the pamphlet and give up there. Yeah. So she may well have kind of railed against the, the local justice system to do something about um, Dorothy. But as far as we know, um, she didn't take any more mm-hmm. um, action. So you don't really see... Uh, any kind of phenomenon that pops up later, such as the reverse witch trial, in which um, people who had accusations of witchcraft made against them would um, take their accusers to court for defamation and things like that. Dorothy either fled further or stayed where she was kind of protected in Berwick and Mary Moore continued her life with her ten children, I suppose. Do we know like what how people reacted to this pamphlet? Because it's quite, I mean, it's incredible. The testimony, the eyewitness accounts, the witnesses. It's quite a shocking pamphlet to read even nowadays. We know it was published in London. And um, it was published, we suspect, by uh, Thomas Harper, who had also published previously on witchcraft as well. Um, including the Richard Brome play, the Lake Lancashire Witches, right. as well. So um, Mary may have been aware, but um, Thomas Harper was definitely aware of the for the appetite for this kind of news. But as it was happening in sixteen fifty, sort of the past the tipping point of witch hunting in England, it didn't secure the same audience that it might have if it had been published a little earlier. I think now we get a real sense of possibly the kind of crimes all of them were accused of. It's like, you know, children were really sick, mm-hmm. a child died. That's not an easy thing, whichever century we're in. Yeah. You know, it's a horrifying thing to, to witness. Um, and that's probably maybe true for a few of other witches in the Newcastle witch trials, that they were sort of guilty, in inverted commas, of doing real harm to people. Yeah, definitely. Um, With the context that Joe mentioned of the plague being in living memory, the sieges and things like that, and the harvest crisis Mm -hmm. of the end of the 1640s too, it definitely adds to this idea of um, witchcraft as an explanation for the, the horrors that people in this area were experiencing at the time. Katie, thank you so much for joining us yet again on the podcast and for walking us through this testimony and this pamphlet. You've been listening to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back again next time with an episode about Anne Armstrong. In the meantime, you can find us on social media under the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you.